welcome to everybody to episode three of Therapeutic Blueprint podcast. My name is Hannah Dobbs and I am one of the presenters today on the panel. We've also got producer Stu and Ian, who I will get them to introduce themselves in a minute. A bit of background about me. Um, I've worked in residential care for 16 years now, almost to the day. And currently, I'm the founder of Therapeutic Blueprint. I'm a trainer, I'm a consultant, and I'm also a therapeutic practitioner working with looked after children, um, specifically in residential care. So that's me. Now I'm going to ask Ian to introduce himself. Hi, everybody. So I've worked in children's services since 2010, and I started off working at a residential school. Um, with predominantly children with autism as well as other conditions and from there I, I moved on to work in a specialist mental health service in Birmingham and I've also worked in a lot of other children's homes as well on an interim basis and I now deliver training full-time as well to residential staff and also foster carers and schools as well. And uh, I've had a fantastic couple of weeks, actually. Uh, met some really wonderful teams recently as well, uh, which is always nice to uh, feedback on and reflect on as well. I, and I'm Stuart McManamy. So, um, yeah, I'm in my 20th year of uh, working with um, children who are looked after. Um, currently unemployed, but that's, that changes on Monday. <laughs> Um, I just want to start the episode by um, just thanking everybody for all the feedback we've received um, from um, personal friends, but also um, professionals as well. That you know, um, some very kind words have been said, and it's it's inspiring us to continue to to move on. And on that basis, we've uh, we've developed a a Twitter page, which I'm learning a lot about. <laughs> so if people want to get in touch with us, they can um, find us on Twitter. Um, the Twitter handle, I think that's the term, is therapeutic underscore pod, or just search for the Therapeutic Blueprint Podcast. Okay, so if you, anybody wants to get in touch on there, um, we'll be able to um, reply and we'll take on board any any views that people will have or future episode ideas. So please follow us. You got very technical there, Stu. Well done. <laughs> so the topic of this episode is going to be about the language that we use in children's homes and in the wider sector too. Um, I think, I mean, I'm sure every episode we're going to say this, but this is also an area that we're very passionate about um, because we we believe, and correct me if I'm right, wrong, guys, is that the language that we're currently using is so institutionalised, it's making things a lot worse for these children. And not just currently, but also when they leave um, children's services and become adults. So let's, let's have a little bit of a discussion to start with. Why don't you, Stu, give a few examples about some institutionalised language that we're talking about, just to clarify with everyone? So I think a lot of the um, the words that we we might use in terms of our talking on this podcast refers to the the, the sector. So some of the notes I've I've got written down are things like um, when children are accommodated under Section Twenty. So that's when um, parents and local authorities enter a voluntary um, agreement for. Um, the local authority to take on the uh, the looking after of the child, and that's where some people, children, might move to foster care, or to to um, residential um, children's homes. Also, um, on 
transversely to that section 31 which is what what's a full care order um so those those are the the some of the reasons why children come into care we also have interim care orders which which are just short-term care orders that that um mean that a child can be placed within to the looked after system for want of a better word um i think there's just there's a lot of language that we 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 become accustomed to within children's homes and we found ourselves guilty in the last episode of talking about so we talked about Ofsted our regulatory body that inspects children's homes on a we'll say annual basis um along with um our reg 44 inspections which is a monthly inspection that takes place i think we explained that a little bit on the, the last episode but also like one of the terms that with children that are looked after they they often referred to as lack so which stands for looked after children um and that that the word lack means something else it means that you you're you're missing something and i think it's it's these sorts of language that just make us think well you know that 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 does it pigeonhole or does it it just makes people think of people a certain way so there's there's lots of there's lots of words that we use within the within children's homes that um that can cause a lot of confusion and we just wanted to try and look at some of those uh, have you got any more you could think of Han? do you know what i was thinking it was more probably to go into a bit more detail about these certain terms not explaining them because you've done that but in the sense of you know there's been so many children's homes that i've walked into and i you know i'm looking at children's homes documentation which they have the right to see right and you know on the first page it's got their name and then it says section 20 like it just feels cold doesn't it it just yes. feels like i don't know for me it almost sounds quite prison like prison language so from the outset they're like this is your name and you're on section 20 and there's never any detail or information about what that is. And I know we put it in the welcome book. So, so essentially when a child moves in, um, one of the requirements that we have is that they have a welcome book, which explains a lot about the home, some of the rules in the home, um, things like what a section 20 and what a section 31 is for them to better understand kind of the legality side of things. But at the same time, I just feel, you know, we're talking to eight-year-olds, we're talking to nine-year-olds, we're talking to seven-year-olds. And if you had asked me or told me as a seven or eight-year-old that you're on a section 20, that would have blown over my mind. And I would have been like, right, that's not my name then, <laughs> but that's allocated to my name. So what do you think, Ian? Another area that, that I've been thinking about this week as well, Hannah, is... Um as well as definitely I agree with what you're saying there, but his diagnosis as well, uh, which is often underneath that on, on a child's paperwork as well, definitely at, at, at the, you know, the forefront of the information on any document. And are those diagnoses actually explained to the child as well? And the impact that can have as well, you know, massively, that, that can actually create further mental health problems as well, then not having that diagnosis explained to them properly and, and the understanding around that and the stigmas around diagnosis as well and, and the not being explained to family members as well. Um, I think it's we've all been guilty of using that language and we still slip into it sometimes. Yeah. It is very yeah. hard to, to avoid completely. Um, and as well, it's it's not just the, the verbal language 
um, and the written language we use, it, it's the, the formats of, of things and the systems we have in place as well. So um, the role of key workers is um, definitely something I think that needs to be discussed further than today as well. But the term key worker, again, it's a very institutionalised term. It's not something I'd ever heard of prior to coming into children's services. Um, but also... Is that role necessary when there's a team around the child? And again, that's something for another day to think about there as well. But um, even when I think about language as well and just sort of on the broader context in terms of institutional institutionalised practice, if you like, having, um, having fire signs up in homes and, and, you know, the physical side of it as well as the actual... Um, so... <laughs> You could argue there that, that it's still a form of uh, non-verbal and, and paraverbal communication in that sense. Yeah, I actually want to go back to what you said, Ian, because all the points that you made are valid, but I want to specifically go back to the key work session part. I think just um, for people who are listening who don't know the sector, a key worker is, and I know they have them in nurseries too, let's be honest, for young, young children, but you get allocated a specific person who's essentially the point of call for you. Now, interestingly, and I don't think we've ever talked about this, but I've previously worked in a home where we actually stopped using the term key workers. And then I moved on after that to another home, which I managed, where we did use the term key workers, but not to the children. We used them for the team. And I'll just explain yeah. that a little bit more. So I had the problem, as you were talking about yourself, about key workers being very institutionalised. You know, you don't go into a family home and go, this is your key worker. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You don't, do you? Um, so we did it that we stopped um that we stopped it because we as far as i'm concerned a child has the right to attach to who they want to attach to there's elements of it you can argue that it allows them to have a point of call when they're unsure certainly when they first move into there's benefits there but i would also argue during the transition process of a child moving in which you know should take as long as you're not an emergency response home, you know, at least a week, at least a week to transition a child. In that time, there's plenty of time so where a child can meet all the team so they can start building a bond. And I also think that's also the manager's responsibility in that time. To, and we've talked about this, Ian, that like, yeah, I feel that the, the manager has the responsibility in that time scale to really work hard to form a relationship with the child and then bring in the team slowly as well. But I think what happens with the term key workers, it almost kind of, in, in a children's home for, for listeners, it depends on the size of the children's home. So, you know, I've worked in a two bed, I've worked in a three bed, I've worked in a six bed, there's an eight bed. It depends on how many children are living there. So say you're in a uh, living in a three-bedded children's home, each child will have a different key worker or a couple of key workers. Um, and there's there's times where I think it's appropriate. Again, it's the language I'm unsure about, you know, especially I'm thinking previously I've worked with children that have been sexually exploited, particularly a girl. So what I wanted for them was a male role model that there was point their point of call that was young and to teach them actually the appropriateness of building relationships. But again, I didn't need to use the term key worker for that. That could have just been their name, which it was. Um, but what what got lost when we took away completely the key workers was almost the responsibility of the team to make sure all the 
details were happening for the child, you know, like dentists, doctors, the admin side of it got lost in it so when I became a manager um, and this was when I was working with Stu as a deputy I don't remember if you remember Stu that with all the staff were allocated to a child within the paperwork side but they weren't from the forefront it did also sometimes work out that actually the key worker was having some of the conversations they needed to have because of all the reports and the admin but it wasn't this is who you have to talk to kind of thing it was like go and attach naturally to whoever you naturally attach to and then we'll build from that onto that because that that forced relationship is is institutionalized in itself yeah yeah which i think we do a lot of yeah yeah it's like you're, you're going to move in here and you're going to like everybody and you are going to respect everybody. Well, why the hell should they like everybody and should they yeah, respect that, everybody? That's not real like, life. It's not real life, especially when you've come from, you know, a lot of trauma in your history where adults have abused that trust. Why do we then have to make them suddenly form these great attachments and we're going to work miracles? Because that's not the reality of life. It's not how it works. Yeah, and it's an unfair expectation on the child as well. Yeah, absolutely. What what do you think, Stu? Because you know you've you were there as well when we were talking about the key workers. I, I was just thinking as as we were talking there. I think the thing by having a key worker or a key link or a link worker or a, a person to go to, I think the difficulty with it is in relationships. You can get on with somebody at a certain time, mm -hmm. and then you can get on with somebody else a bit more. So actually it just kind of shifts. Mm. So that's where the responsibility becomes everyone's responsibility because actually it's, it's the key worker role is sometimes to, to have those tricky discussions, but actually it doesn't, it's no good it being me having a discussion with a child that I'm, you know, that I'm not connected with better than somebody else. So I think putting it onto one person or two people, it just, it, like you say, it limits the, oh, well, I, I don't have to do that because that so-and-so is going to do it or so-and-so's going to do it. Well, actually, we can all do it. We can all have a conversation with the child and we can all record it in a certain way that, you know, is still gets that message across. I think it's um, it's a tricky one because it's not going away. It's 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 been around for 20 years. I've been a key worker for 20 years. I think, that, I mean, the term key worker now often means something else following the pandemic. But I think in terms of a children's home, it's, um, it's, it, it needs to, it needs to develop. It needs to include everybody. And it means that people can't step back and say, well, I'm not the key worker. I can't do that. Yeah. Because they, that's, that's a get out and that's not okay, really. No, it's, it's not. And I know we're going to talk about burnout in the coming weeks, but I'd actually argue that the role of a key worker can be a contributing role towards that as well. That 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 level of responsibility that is sometimes thrust onto one person in some organisations. I also found at a point that key working became competitive, and actually people would like if the, if there were particular issues that. Um, a child was facing people would link that to the key worker and that was unfair unfair on the child and unfair on the staff and again links to the to the to what you just said about burnout I think the other thing that I was thinking about and I had a conversation with a social worker not long ago about um institutionalized, lang institutionalized language and she made a valid point she says the problem is if you change the language it will become institutionalized anyway and I thought that was an interesting point 
like how do we stop institutionalized language coming into care if we're changing it but then i suppose at the same time it's it's what you're changing it to right i think so i think i think also the 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 beauty of of languages is that language doesn't stay still language evolves mm. so it's okay to change something and then change it again you know it doesn't have to be this marketing word that you know makes everybody feel a certain way if it's not working change it if that's then not working change it again it's i suppose it's the let, let's think about really now the focus of why we don't like the institutionalized language is the impact that it has on the children so for me at this point I think it's appropriate to talk about the labelling theory um, so essentially the labelling theory was derived in the 1960s which proposed that an individual's behaviour was significantly influenced by what society thought of them through the labels fashioned onto individuals or groups so when it comes to research regarding this it often focuses on the implications of labelling within a criminology context suggesting that creating a level of deviant results in the promotion of deviant behaviours through an individual's self-concept which basically suggests that individuals sort absorb the language from other people society's perceptions and attitude and in turn they allocate this to their blueprint so it's essentially what it's saying overall is it's creating a self-fulfilling prophecy so if we you know and i know it's a criminology context right now with the the word um deviant but at the same time the self-fulfilling prophecy was they became deviants <laughs> like so what, what what does the term looked after child say i'm looked after all the time yeah, that, that takes yeah. away in itself a level of autonomy there. Yeah, it And does. takes away empowerment as well when, when you break it down. But then I've also, the pessimist in me probably is thinking, but they're not looked after all the time. The, you know, they should be. Yeah, yeah there's that as well. <laughs> they yeah. should be, and, and that's a whole other podcast for another time. But Or even if you refer to our second episode... Um, podcast we talked about how they the child clearly wasn't looked after then um so there's there, there's a lot isn't there to unpick in this regarding how it influences the child because example or, that i was thinking of ian was from you actually and it's worth you mentioning about the call that we had earlier about um that staff member that you were talking to yes yeah so i, I um i met some lovely uh, foster carers this week and um of course, a lot of a lot of schools have had parents' evenings this week as well, and and this this one foster carer was was extremely upset because during the uh, the parents' evening, one of the education staff I don't know if it was a what what role they were exactly it might have been a supporting TA, but they actually um, highlighted to one of their colleagues, oh by the way, this child's a looked after child, and. <laughs> Was that relevant? I was going to say, was that relevant? <laughs> it's just so, and and what are you insinuating there? And of course, this this parent had to really try her best to control her emotions, and uh, hats off yeah. to her, she managed to do that. But that in itself, it, it's just it's suggesting there's a stigma there straight away, whether that's the conscious or more subconscious of it as well. And uh, why did that need to be mentioned? That's what I was thinking. That is what. 
if you're the person getting that information, what are you supposed to do with that? Yeah. If you hear that a child's looked after, you're supposed to tilt your head and go, ah, oh, I'm sorry. And that's not me being horrible. I mean, but that's if if I do that, that's my lowering my expectations, lowering my my my, my what I want children to achieve. That I'll, we can forgive people, or not forgive people, but we can allow people to kind of not do as well because they look. Yeah, or, or you're waiting for telling that important. person. Waiting for the response. Sorry, Stu. Oh, so that explains yeah. it. You know, is that, is that what they were trying to get by yeah. telling that? I actually did some research into that, Stu. And in the, the research I was looking at was when I was originally writing my dissertation at university. And it was looking at people's perceptions and attitudes towards looked after children in the wider community and in an education setting it was talking about exactly what you mentioned the looked after child section of a of a school as in you know what talking about the language however it was you know everything was done done from a good place they were looking after the children they were being more therapeutic to the children but what actually was found was that by doing that they were reducing their expectation like you mentioned so then they couldn't achieve what um well they can achieve whatever they want to achieve but just from the outset it it's like the threshold's been lowered yeah almost yeah yeah and it's and it's not always from a bad place it's it's a lack of understanding really isn't it and it's it's a stigma in there and that's why we talk about it to do to educate more about it um but for me an example that i'm thinking of well, there's two parts. One, I remember um, one of our young children, she she was a 16-year-old girl and I was helping her do an application for college. And on and, and on that document, um, it talked about, I can't even know, I don't even remember exactly how it was wording, but we had to talk about the type of children's home she was living in. And I wrote down EBD. I know we've mentioned this in previous podcasts, it, I have a problem with this and this is why I have a problem. She looked at me and went, what's EBD? And uh, I went, oh, it's emotional behavioural difficulties. And I could see her physically just go pale and then get really angry. And I I was like, so I'm, that's me. I'm an emotional behavioural difficulty child. And I just remember like freezing because I didn't have a response for it because in my head, I just thought, oh my God, I never thought about this before. And I was like, Oh, I just have, you know, we just have to label these homes sometimes. I don't know why. And then afterwards, I remember going away and thinking, what a stupid response I said. And two was like, why do we? Like, why are we doing that, for one? Um, Because our statement of purpose tells us to. (laughs) Like, is that a good enough reason? But two, what I then did was it really made me think and reflect on the language that we used in the home at the time. And from that, we, and Stu was there because it was in the home that he worked at too, we sat down with the children and we then were, right, let's discuss the language, what you like and what you don't like. And I think, Stu, you've got some examples, haven't you, of, of what they wanted to be things to be called versus what they were called. So it's probably worth sharing that at this moment. Yeah, so we found a list, list of words. I think one of the, see, I think... One of the things we talked about was was the term young people. I think when we when we use the term young people, I think as well, we, we forget that young people are children and you're a child until you're 18. And that's not to put children down, but it's okay to be a child. Mm-hmm. It's really yeah. okay. So so that we part of that was avoiding the term young people. Um, I'm just going to have to zoom in. So we've got um, staff. 
we replaced with adults. Yeah, I was going to say we've so never were, caught them. We were the adults yeah. of the car. Because I've 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 had children shout staff 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 you know just like and running to them and saying my name's Stuart like um, and we we'd never shout young people or child um, unit. Um, and and yeah. I've heard that that um, crop up in conversations in the last fortnight. Oh, still yeah, still there, still there. So we we talked about just home. So I'm back home, yeah. not back at the unit, I'm back home. Um, we looked at terms like outcome, outcomes, results, achievements. You know, these were the words. Um, on shift, yeah. you're just there, you're here. Yeah. Um, offside, offside, out, you're just out. Um, I'm just looking through. So we, there's things that, are, you know, menu planners that you have to, you know, well, you don't have to have, but a lot of children's home thinks, thinks you have to have. Just what's for dinner. Um, just looking through some more. Thinking of things like so, free um, time as well. I hate that term, free time. Yeah. Again, oh, it's no. another prison term. Okay, now you're on free time. It's not about free time, people. It's about just like, go and have fun, go and enjoy life. Isn't that what we do? Because yeah. I don't walk out the house and, and someone yell at me, enjoy your free time, Han. Like, <laughs> that's not normal. Independence is another one that really bugs oh, me. Yeah. Oh, you, you're on independence now. Now you're oh, growing yeah. up. You're growing up. That, that's what you're doing. Yeah. 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 And, and it's interesting because that's why we, we've got, I've got that on the list, semi-independence, growing up. Um, activity. Yeah. Can I do an activity? Because that's the language that of, of a home. Can I go out and do something? It's just going out. Um, I thought, I, I think, you know, we, we talk about residential and how much we love it. And at this point, I just want to put in an example that to this day still makes me laugh. And it's one of those moments that I always cherish. And it's, it revolves around uh, the language was when a young person, she was great at finding each staff member's Achilles heel. You know what it's like. Everyone does it. They'll find it. And it took her so long to figure out mine. So long. But when she did, she figured it out good and proper and it's about hierarchy so I really struggle in children's homes that there's hierarchy I personally don't even believe there needs to be seniors there doesn't need to be assistant managers or managers I don't like the language so she found out that I didn't like the language I don't like being called manager <laughs> which she played on this for months and would call me Hanager <laughs> <laughs> and it's brilliant because it, she she found it good and proper and didn't let it go god love her <laughs> i think i gave her that name <laughs> i think i gave it to her uh, but it, it, it reminds me of when i was a, a senior and, and the children would say oh you're senior i said oh no that's not what it is that says senior <laughs> and i just met I'm, I'm just senior yeah and I think that's like, what do we think about the terminology that we use for the team? Because I, my issue with having all this, these different terms or having, I'm happy with, you know, you having one senior, one deputy manager, one manager. I do understand that there is a need for hierarchy because it, it has a purpose in some ways, but I don't understand why homes always have one senior on on every shift because it's almost there's a power imbalance there for me it's a bit like you're not empowering everybody you're only empowering 
the senior or the deputy manager or the manager like why can't we just all just be our names and this is what we do Mm. you know and in times of need I know that there needs to be management but at the same time uh, yeah I don't know what what are your thoughts on it guys I was just thinking that the 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 manager the, the the hierarchy terms or the the positional terms the senior the deputy manager the manager those are all terms for the professionals you know you're a deputy manager because you act in a supervisory role you know you do specific things but actually to the children it doesn't doesn't really make any odds you know you're just you're just that person so I think that's where I don't know how to how how that could look. But actually, my title is just for the team because I, you know, for, 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 for them to go to. But I think a team should be empowered to make decisions instead of instead of hiding behind other people and saying, well, we're going to have to ask so-and-so, we're going to have to ask so-and-so. Make a decision, you know, and then, and then if it doesn't work out, at least you made a decision and we can learn from things. So I think that way, I think if we could kind of differentiate the two, the, the, the hierarchy is about, the team and the supervisory aspect of it it's not about the you know just just spending time with the kids it doesn't matter what your role is and and i do believe there does need to be stratification and Mm. and hierarchy Mm. it is necessary Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it's it's how that's presented it doesn't need to be in your face and obvious it just needs to be there in the background quietly um because it does create problems in itself and what I was thinking of was as well when, when somebody gets promoted in the child's mind, then are they thinking, is that going to change our relationship? Oh, they're going to be in the office more now because seniors spend more time in the office because that's what I've seen over the years. I've seen other, yeah. you know, other staff, other adults use use that as an excuse. Oh, I'm the senior, so I have more paperwork to do. And actually, that can be the case, but also that can be an excuse for, for some carers out there as well. Let, let's be honest about that. Um, when, when people want to avoid working with through challenging times, sometimes they, they can use that as a bit of a get out of jail clause as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that there has to be a level of accountability and the level of experience in homes as well. But it's about empowering everybody. And actually, the kids don't need to know whose title's what. They just need to to know that, that those staff will be there for them and, and deliver the care that they need at that moment in time. It goes back to, um, <laughs> I don't have a manager in my home. <laughs> I don't know, you know, I don't come home and go, oh, who's the assistant manager on today? Who's the manager on today? You don't have that, like in a normal everyday home. So why do you have to have it in a children's home? I understand that there's, like you talked about, there's some things that we need them for, you know, then that only a manager can handle or management can handle. And when I talk about that, I mean things like allegations and stuff like that, because there's procedures and protocols and things that we need to do but at the same time like you said Ian you don't have to go oh the manager you can just be like Hannah's here do you know what I mean Hannah Hannah will sort that one out and I think it also it goes back to again like how does that make a child feel because I would if it was me and I was coming home from school and I was bringing one of my friends and I was like right so um such and such seniors on today we've also got an assistant manager but the manager will be upstairs in the office 
I mean, if I was one of the children's friends, I think from the outset I'd be like, "Oh God, like what is this? Like this? That sounds almost quite scary, actually, quite it formal." Does sound daunting. Uh, yeah. yeah, like you're going into school and being like the deputy head and the head teacher. Like it's it's the same feeling, and I wonder if it also puts off our children's friends from coming round. Yeah, and 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 our children asking their friends to come round as well. Yeah, it's absolutely. I, w- yeah. I wouldn't ask. I would be embarrassed. But also the other element, you know, I've also worked with those children who have said, can you be my aunt or can you be my cousin? Mm. Like we've all worked with those children that don't want, you know, who's this person? Oh, she's my carer. It just has, it shouldn't have a negative connotation against it. It really shouldn't, but it does. It means like, again, I'm being cared for versus, oh, this is just Hannah. She's my cousin. The amount of times I've had that, I mean, it changes as I get older, those names, I'll be grandma soon. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but I can also understand why children do it. And that's why I'm happy to go along with it because it makes them feel comfortable in that moment. And also if they don't have a family, because I've worked with children that, you know, don't have any family, then it get, makes them feel like they have that sense of belonging and feeling, which what a children's home should do is a, just an additional family, isn't it? Yeah, I think what, what, I've, what I was just thinking as well, when you talk about children coming to visit the home, I think it probably impacts those those friends' parents maybe don't want children coming to that home because those children are then going to be looked at by professionals and judge and feel that they're going to be judged. So is that then a problem? And that's when I suppose I was thinking when you talked about label th- labelling theory, is there a thing like labelling theory by proxy or actually people's views can impact other people's views. So actually it restricts people's views on a certain thing, restricts those around them. And that's essentially what I suppose that is. Yeah. Just a thought. Yeah, no, it, no, you're right. It's always good to think that's what we do on here. <laughs> like, <it's, laughs> I think the impact that we're having on the children and their network is actually, you know, we're trying to make them build friends. We're trying to help them gather the skills to be able to do it but from the outset of saying you know like you mentioned before Ian let's go back to the unit what the heck's a unit like and that was the language I used to use because that was the the language used when I first started and it wasn't until over time where I was like hang on a minute this isn't fit this isn't fit to the remit of what we're trying to be and I will admit that only really changed when I moved from a larger home to a small home um, because I, I, the larger home that I worked in was actually purpose-built, so it was absolutely institutionalised, whereas the small home I moved to was a home. And then I was like, oh, from the from the visualisation of the just walking up the drive, we're now in a home, versus the home that I worked at originally, which was also next door to an elderly care home. Which says a lot, doesn't it? And going back to what I said at the beginning about non-verbal language as well, not just mm-hmm. the actual language mm-hmm. that we speak, but people wearing lanyards, I just wanted to mention Ugh. as well, and people walking around swinging the keys or they're jangling along like the caretaker. Um, that just screams prison to me. Yeah, it, it's like you're the janitor really? walking around. Yeah, yeah. But and, I and did that. as well. 
I did that in the early days. I remember having the, the keys, the lanyard tucked into my trousers and just opening all the doors like we were in prison. And, you know, if there was something that was happening where we needed to look after and protect the children and we would lock down the the doors that's what we did um yeah. which it wasn't until honestly it was probably about two three months ago when um, a conversation with the Ofsted inspector said why are there locks on the doors and it, in my head I was like I have no idea because that's not how I work but because it was always just what you did. You had the locks on the doors. We never used the locks, but at the same time, so why are they on there? And that was only challenged three months ago. Yeah. You know, and and that put also a lot of fear into staff members that I've worked with previously. Is like, hang on a minute, what do we do if something happens? But again, in your own home, you don't lock down the doors, do you? Maybe the bathroom. <laughs> and the front door. Yeah. <laughs> and the front door. But you don't. No, you certainly don't. And I, and that was a that was an an eye opener actually because I remember the discussion taking place about the door the door locks. It was like why are the locks on the doors downstairs? And and it was like oh, because I, I assume they should be there. Well, don't assume. Like. And actually, it was quite. Fr I found it quite freeing to take them off. I changed the locks, if you remember. Mm -hmm. And I think, but I do feel I do. I do remember there being a, an anxiety about it, even within myself. And then just saying, "Oh no, actually, this makes sense." Yeah, and it's funny because when I first um, stopped doors being locked in the first home that I worked in, I remember having the conversation with the team. And, you know, hats off to everybody because I, I think it petrified them because it was like, well, that's one of the only things that I can control, right? If everything's going off, off and, you know, you're not sure, you're trying to protect children and each other and everybody. And it's like, well, if I could just contain it, that'll be okay. And so then I was like, we're not going to do that anymore because let's be honest, it's like a rabbit in a hutch for a child. But then what they experienced after that was, the incidences just went right down because there weren't any instances because you were no longer controlling physically the child, which is the key element to it, isn't it? It was about, I know if someone locked me, locked a door on me, I would absolutely derail. I know I would. I would want to be getting out of there. Um, and there are times we have to do it and we have to do it, but we have to do it in a certain way to protect the children um, and we also have to record it because deprivation of liberty, right? Which people also don't realise when you're locking a child into a room in children's residential care to protect them. And I'm not saying this in the form of a way we just go around locking children into rooms. We're talking when they're completely dysregulated. They could be violent. They could be hurting themselves. They could be hurting other people. We might have to physically restrain the child to help protect them. Then part of that might be that we're locking a room door but a lot of people don't realise that's deprivation of liberty and you have to write that up. And Ian, you're probably best explaining this as well because this is what you train, isn't it? Yeah, in, ter in terms of physical intervention, yes. Mm -hmm. um, when we deprive it, even a restraint is, is depriving somebody yeah. of, of their movement, their, their yeah. ability to move. Um, so we like to think of them as safety interventions. Mm, yeah, rather nice. than rather than restraints because ultimately what we're doing and what we should be doing when we have to 
intervene physically with a child is we're doing it to keep them safe it's not coming from a place of of control and punishment so again that language safety intervention we wouldn't say that to a child but it's still institutionalized language but it's a lot more positive than a restraint or a physical intervention because what we're highlighting that is the use of safety um and and there is times where we do have to deprive children of of their liberty things like even locking their medication away it's it's Mm -hmm. coming from a safe a safe place and actually we we do that in in any home wouldn't we we wouldn't leave bottles of cowpole next to the uh the kellogg's cornflakes in there i'm not advertising (laughs) kellogg's by the way here just putting that out there but uh you know we, we do have to put restrictions in place in any home as well but it's it's what's necessary and proportionate isn't it and that that's always the key is it necessary and proportionate relevant to the current risks as well not historic risks from three years ago not labels that have stuck to that child for years that and you know they've moved on they've grown they've matured they haven't shown because a lot of these these labels stick with children on risk assessments and their documentation for many years as well don't they i'm glad Um, you said that ian actually because you've made me go to think about referrals because so essentially when um children's homes have space in their home so say they have a three-bedded home and they have two children there and they're they, they're ready now to place another child into the home. One of the first steps we do is we get referrals from local authorities of the children that need homes. Now, the documentation of that referral over the years, I mean, I've, I've seen some brilliant ones, absolutely, and I've seen some horrific ones as well, exactly for the reason that you're talking about, Ian, the way that the language is used, the diagnoses. Like, I, I've read too many referrals that I have no idea of a sense of a child apart from that they sound super scary and they're not they're a child like where the where where's the good stuff where's the positives in what that child brings to the plate right and I and I think that it's getting better and I think certain local authorities are way better at doing it than others and um, some of the best social workers i've i've worked with when i've moved um a child on i sat down with the social worker and together we've done it but again that's that's multi-agency working isn't it and I, you know i've sat down with the social worker a parent and myself and done one before between the three of us yes the child was on a section 31 meaning that we had full care of the child as in the local authority but the parents also still human and they're still part of the journey and we've got to um, help them be better because you know there's there's challenges that parents face too which i think sometimes gets ignored um that they're only human and that they need support and help so back to the referral i think you're right within the language that we're putting onto children from, you know, that's the first thing I'm seeing as a manager when I'm thinking about moving a child into the home is that. And normally it's the first thing I don't look at and I just think, do you know what, I'm going to have a meeting first because I want to meet the child myself and see that they're not this monster that's nine times out of ten put on a document. You know, we've got to remember as professionals the language that we use, as you said, sticks with them, sticks with them. Something they've done five years ago is still like on the top of the risk assessment, which hasn't been updated. 
and they're no longer doing that type of behaviour. And what you never see is the context behind it either. Exactly. Were there several other children in the home that were making them feel unsafe for that time, which was causing them to go to go missing from yeah. the home as well? So it, the context, and definitely the, there is certain things that people look out for. There's certain red flags, if you like, yes. um, on referrals, sexualised behaviour. Again, mm-hmm. that can be massively misinterpreted sometimes. Mm-hmm. That could just be a, a remark somebody makes. Yeah. Um, arson. Somebody burnt a photo of a family member that has let them down countless times over the years. That's not arson. That, that's quite a therapeutic ritual, if you yeah. like. Quite <laughs> yeah. a cathartic release. Yeah. You know, let, 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 let's, let's actually label that as, as what it was. You know, they, they, they set fire to a photo of a family member following you know, family time being cancelled or whatever the context was. The context so important, isn't it? Because it's the old saying, mud sticks. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and, and it affects future opportunities as well and future placement potentially. Um, it narrows down their prospects because of these these labels. And to pick up on what you were saying, I think but what you were both saying was I think with referrals, I think... There are these these words, like you said, that stick out and those then stick in your mind. And that then comes back to that stigma, that labelling. And and it's our, our role to question those. And I, a, a quick short story is I, I looked after a child once and it was said quite explicitly that he cannot go swimming. And it wasn't me, it was a manager at the time, explored this further because this child wanted to go swimming and he was told, no, you can't. So it's easy to assume the worst, that something happened that was really, really inappropriate. And when it was when it was drilled down and looked into, this child once pushed somebody into a pool. Now, if that's the case, nobody should go swimming because we've all pushed somebody yeah, into yeah. a swimming pool. Mm-hmm. But that that stuck, and that child couldn't go. Probably probably missed out on swimming for two or three years of their life. Oh. You know, what what else are children missing out? And it's not fair. No, it's not fair. You're absolutely right. And it's and and also, I suppose it makes managers and teams risk averse uh, and i think that you generally explain what that means a bit more Ian. yeah so b- being risk averse is is just being overly conscious of risk and always thinking about the worst case scenario instead of thinking about the opportunity that being risk sensible creates and um, life is full of risks and we've got to be realistic and pragmatic about that it's about managing risk safely but if we own when we risk averse we're just focusing solely on the risks we're not focusing on the opportunity and, gro- and growth that exposure to those risks can create when managed safely and when planned carefully as well and and that gradual increase in freedom and and actually when you when you give child a bit more freedom and a bit more autonomy and 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 definitely allow them to have more input in their care you do see less behaviors because you're taking away that tug of war so actually it's productive then because you're reducing the risk by proxy by actually giving that freedom but it's it's hard when you're stuck in that that sort of negative feedback loop of, of that tug of war of well, we can't give them any freedom because of the behaviours, but actually we, we have to. And, and a big thing for me is what I've seen over the years is that people get fixed on because something's different and we've never done it before 
or it's something new, it's automatically risky by default, which is a very closed-minded way of thinking. Um, yeah. Just because it might be a crazy idea, it might be completely outside the box, but actually it might be the best idea that that and the best way forward for that child. So just because something's new and something's different, it doesn't mean it's more riskier and it doesn't mean we should try it. It's all about the planning and getting together and having several people bringing their views to the table as well. But yeah, I've seen some very ridiculous examples over the years and when you challenge it and, and you, you get people to look at it from a different angle and then they realise, yeah, you know, you're right. We, we, we expose them to far greater risks every day. It's just, it's different, that's why. And as humans, we are scared of things that are different. We're hardwired. And I suppose there's the element when we look at referrals, we're all guilty of it. We all look for the behaviours initially. That That's yeah. just our... That, that's our defence mechanisms being engaged there, you know, our, our, our survival instincts kicking in. But then it's it's about us actually taking time to think, you know what, that's my angups there. Um, I suppose the other thing is as well is how we use previous challenging or negative experiences sometimes and that can cloud um, the next referral that we read. Because yeah. we see those words and it's a very different child and we have to remember that. And we're only human as well, but we do need to be aware of that, that we can talk kids with the same brush when we see those words on paper as well. Um, yeah. And that's why it's important, isn't it, for any um, pre-placement assessment or any any referral that, that we look through them as a team as well. Um, because if one person's had a very negative experience in the past and they're still not over it and still working through that, it is going to cloud and, and potentially prevent a really positive opportunity from developing. Well, it's a bit like what we talked about with the labelling theory earlier, right? Because if we're labelling a child with the word deviant, um, then, you know, as the research st stated, then it was a self-fulfilling prophecy that then they became deviant. So if you know, we all know that you can walk into a children's home and you can feel the emotional climate in there straight away. You know, if it's a good day, yeah. it's a bad day, things, the tension's going. So if a child walks into the home and we're all like, oh, gosh, here's someone that's going to go missing tonight. And they're going to go missing <laughs> because you're going to feel that tension. You're going to feel that there's an aura going on that people are worried or anxious because remember these children have been in survival mode for so much longer than we have that they are, are heightened in their senses more than we can even comprehend. So you, they probably know from a mile away that you're going to you're concerned about something or other, and that's Most it's also not comfortable to be around. I don't want to be around someone who constantly thinks I'm going to run away. I may and as well I've just heard prove that it. A lot. Yeah. It's going to kick off today or on the oh, hand over. You're, yeah. you're going to have fun today. Good luck and that patronising pat on yeah. the back as as they're they're walking off. Off shift again, another uh, <laughs> institutionalised yeah. phrase, but it, that does become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the problem is then our um, our emotional parts of the brain become more engaged and then we don't plan the day as well. Because, But do you think also onto that is... Yeah, when you when you look at the documentation about referrals or the the, the conversation that we're having with a handover, which is the the thirty minute discussion you know, between two teams, is 
nobody wants to own their own mistakes, no own their contribution to it, so that we'll just blame somebody else. And actually, it's the environmental factors, and we're part of that environment. And actually, there's sometimes that that we're contributing to things. And I, I know in my practice over the last few years, I've got better at that, and I've I've been able to own most own things. But there's still a lot of people out there that are very new to the role, and that's that takes a lot of growth. And that takes a lot of reflection. Yeah. And that takes a lot of support. And we've all caused incidents many times in our careers. Yeah, and, and it's, learn, it's learning from them, isn't it? Yeah. But there's a lot of there's a lot of blaming the child in incident reports. We see it all the time, don't we? Yeah. Um, mm. We see how the police blame victims of CSE. The, the, their language referring to the child as being promiscuous. Mm. Yeah, you know, and they're a child. And, and, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's such, such yeah. damaging and completely inappropriate language, but it's very commonly used, isn't it? So, Sadly. what's the solutions? What, what, like we've we've talked about the problem that's out there. What, what's everyone's first thought of with the solutions? I mean, for me, the first is always a raising awareness, which is what we're trying to do right now. Is yeah. we're we're trying to put it out there, talking about you know the language from the outset, what we've got it, what we use, and you know you talked about it, Ian earlier with it that we all still make mistakes with it because we do. I yeah. still call it res sometimes in my head, not to the children, but to somebody else about oh I work in res. That's not all right. You don't work in res. That's <laughs> I don't know why I say it, but I've always said it because it was just something that pro- was being programmed into me over the years um and it's like i suppose in a way i'm kind of answering the question here is self-reflection being able to reflect on our own individual use of language and challenging the status quo with it um for these children and like i know after that incident i had with um the um, ebd with that girl it, it completely changed my way of thinking like even the way we all our documentation within the home was changed in the wording. So how we would formally write a report, we then started writing it to the child in a letter form because that was like a a letter of a memory that they're going to read in 10 years' time versus this institutionalised language that they are just going to see of a clinical report that's cold, there's no personality in it, and normally nine times out of ten it's shaming the child for doing something wrong. So everything we did, we adapted to be about the achievements the positives also you know even there will be sections like this is going to be tricky to talk about but we still need to talk about it but that letter format was embedded in everything we did even our instant reports was writing to the child because i think with that it was more powerful because it's more personalized to them and we used to always you know we would sign off things like love han because that's another thing we're not allowed to talk about is the loving the children. That's a taboo. That's, oh, you can't do yeah, that. The, well, the dreaded word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the dreaded yeah. word for people was, yes, shockingly, I did love my children because, and, and I still call them my children now because they grew up with us. We watched them every day. We spent that time with them. We had intersubjectivity, meaning like that relationship dance. They gave me something back as much as I hopefully gave them. Yeah, I think as well as just like, yes, they grew up with us, but I grew up with them as yeah. well. I think, yeah, yeah. I think that's another that thing to process. say is that, yeah, it was, it was, it was reciprocal. It wasn't just one way, you know. I mean, I've learned a lot about myself thanks to this role, and 
and will continue to do so. I think for me, again, when you talk about, you know, um, how do we how do we tackle this? I think it's what you said is empathy, is actually just thinking about how, how, how I would feel having to read about my life mm-hmm. written by somebody else. You know, I, I, I often read autobiographies. I like the ones that are written by the author, not the ones that are written by somebody mm-hmm. else. And I think that's the way, if you can try and write it in, in their narrative, in a way that makes sense to them, and thinking about them as a future adult, I think that's the way we can kind of develop and evolve the language and and the system. Yeah, yeah. and it helps and we, staff build that empathy for the child and understanding as well then, when they're trying to word it from their perspective. Yeah, and with kindness. And and also, like, if you're annoyed at the time, because we all get annoyed, if we've been kept up all night because we've been having problems, like, we're tired, don't write something that day. <laughs> like, come back in, you've got 24 hours, write it the next day when you're on. Because, I, you know, in that... T- in that on that piece of paper you're writing your emotions essentially without even realizing it looks passive aggressive in the way we write in our style but by actually stepping back being reflective thinking about is this about me or is this about them like really trying to understand the child being at the center of everything we do I think that even though we do it and we say it, but I don't think we're actually that good at implementing it when we're tired, when we're burnt out, when we're struggling, when, you know, life happens too to us. We're only humans. But at the end of the day, we're also not going to be reading about ourselves in 10 years time. We're very fortunate in that sense, whereas they're going to have to have millions of different people's opinions on them in 10 years time, which isn't fair. (laughs) It's not fair at all. And I've sat down with teams um, like you, you both have done and and looked at our language and, and got them involved in, mm. in rephrasing things. But also it's worth going through, through incident reports in team meetings as well and, and looking how can we, we refine our language that way as well, collaboratively and get everybody involved in that as well. Yeah, and I think it's also and I say this to new children's homes that are opening or people are thinking that opening them, you have the best canvas to start with when you're opening up a brand new home. So in those moments, that's when really choose the language that you're um, putting into your documents and how you're embedding it in there. Because I think a lot of people, and I would say the majority are still extremely institutionalized. So if you don't feel that it works with um, your ethos and your values, be brave. Don't be risk adverse. Be brave and change that language for the children. Not about being different because you want to stand out as a children's home. I'm talking about doing it solidly for the children. So I think from there, I think we're we're end this podcast for today. But we'll talk about our next episode. Stu, do you want to mention what we're going to be doing next? Yeah. So I think next next episode we're going to talk about burnout, which I think is um, to explain burnout a little. It's just when people when when things get on top of people professionally, and it's about recognising it because people aren't recognising it. It's about acknowledging it. It's about accepting it, and it's about working working things through and working things forward um so that's the next episode um just before we close i just want to i found a a poem today and i'm not i don't really read poems but this was written by a child who was in foster care and it kind of it's kind of apt in terms of what we're talking about today it's called i am not a placement i am not a placement i'm a vulnerable innocent child 
not to be depersonalised, insulted and reviled. I am not a nightmare, a burden or a brat. I didn't ask to be here, so please don't call me that. I'm not a respite, short-term, long-term match. I'm a little person, a frightened one in fact. I'm not a solo, I'm the eldest child of three. But due to my behaviours, they've granted enhanced fees. I'm not a lack, a step-down or a bridge. Chucked around the system like a second-hand fridge. To live within a family should be my human right. I should never have to ask, where will I sleep at night? Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll be back soon.